online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, the Wine Society at 150. Head buyer Pierre Mansour is my guest to celebrate its history as the world's oldest member-owned business, how it stays relevant to modern wine lovers, what he thinks we'll be drinking in 2024, its anniversary year, and of course, his Desert Island wine. It's 1874. Queen Victoria is monarch. Disraeli becomes prime minister, defeating Gladstone's liberals in the general election. The city of Chicago is devastated by an enormous fire. And deep in the cellars of the Royal Albert Hall, something is stirring. Thanks to a parcel of Portuguese wines destined for an international exhibition and the need to avoid a diplomatic incident, the Wine Society is born. 150 years later, it's still going strong, now based in Stevenage. The world's oldest member-owned cooperative society is booming, having seen a boost in membership during the pandemic, which also tested its resources like never before. I am a member, full disclosure, have been for almost 30 years, and it's where I buy, I would say, the majority of my wine. Uh, Pierre Mansour is the head buyer, and he joins us now. Pierre, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Hi, David. Thank you. Nice to be here with you. It's nice to have you and uh, congratulations on the anniversary. Um, if you wouldn't mind taking us back to 1874, I know you're not that old, uh, but um, <laughs> at this past of the Portuguese wine, uh, just explain uh, what went on. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating story, actually. So back in those sorts of times, it was very common for international exhibitions to be held in uh, London and, and other major cities. Um, and there was one such exhibition at the Albert Hall uh, in 1874. And it was an exhibition that focused on uh, food and drinks. And um, producers would send over their wares and present them to um, the British uh, consumers. The wine at this particular event was Portuguese wine that was sent over. And actually what happened was uh, this particular one at the Albert Hall was actually a bit of a failure. It wasn't a very successful exhibition. So um, there was a load of this Portuguese wine left over. Um, of course, in those times, um, sending wine from Portugal from abroad, uh, you know, was both costly and, and, and quite complicated and, and difficult. So the Portuguese growers um, basically said to the British government, look, keep the wine, um, use the wine. Um, we trust that you will use the wine for something productive um, and um, so what the British government did was turn to the architect of the Albert Hall, um, a chap called Major uh, General Scott, and said, here you go, here's some wine, come up with some, some, some good ideas. And he organised a series of luncheons with um, wine lovers who uh, got together regularly to drink and enjoy these Portuguese wines. 
Um, and it proved such a success that when they ran out of the Portuguese wines, they decided between them as a group, they said, you know what, why don't we all just club together to take um, and organize um, our next shipment of, of wines? Um, and that's really how the Wine Society started. So it is a club. Um, every member has a share in 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 the wine society uh, so we are a cooperative we have we have actually no external shareholders but as a member you um basically get access to our wines and nothing has really changed since 1874 in 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 that respect so everything is done for the benefit of uh, the members and that was very much how it was founded so actually if you look on if you look online, our, our official corporate title is International Exhibition Cooperative Wine Society. And the exhibition element there is um, in recognition of the 1874 exhibition at the Albert Hall. Yeah. And of course, exhibition is also used on some of your wines, but we'll come to that in a, a bit. Um, it was really ahead of its time then, because what then followed... Um, at the start of the last century was the explosion of cooperative movements, um, the co-op, um, and there are various mutual societies, of course, uh, being a, an example. Um, but actually, the Wine Society might not have known it, those early members. Uh, they were kind of leading the way with a new way of doing things, weren't they? Yeah, it, ac- absolutely. And, and actually, if um, in many ways, when you look at beyond cooperatives and, and in more recent times, it's kind of um, the, you know, the, the, the original sort of crowdfunding approach, you know, because basically as members, they put their money into, you know, into a kitty. And that kitty was used to, um, um, to, to bring in and, and select wines. Um, so, yes, absolutely, though, cooperative as a business model was, was a very, very uh, common model um, at that time. Um, and, you know, there are still um, businesses like the Wine Society that exist as cooperatives. We're the only one in terms of as a wine club um, in the UK and probably in the world. And actually, the model is that the model today, I think, really kind of resonates with 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 consumers because I guess there's because there's no external shareholders that have an interest in the business being profit and growth actually without those external shareholders the only um, measure that we have as a business is is how satisfied our members are with the service services we provide them and the wines that we um, sell to them. I was going to say, uh, it's an interesting model. It's very different. It works well. Um, Why do you think it's so fundamental? Because if you play devil's advocate, the very fact you don't have a profit motive could make you kind of lazy, could make you arrogant. Um, You know, it's um, if you play devil's advocate, you know, it, it, it cuts both ways. A lot of people who are avowed capitalists would say it's a terrible way of running yeah. an organisation. Absolutely, David. And I think that's a really good point because um, being non-profit maximising uh, is not an excuse to run a business um, inefficiently. Uh, you know, we sell about three and a half thousand different wines in a year. We import those wines from all over the world um, and they come into our warehouse. Um, we've got five warehouses in in the UK, in Stevenage, 
And then we distribute those wines out to all of our members who live all over the UK. Um, so, you know, the logistics of doing that, and then you add on the service element through our website, through our uh, member services, which is which is um, essentially the service where a member rings up and can place an order if they don't want to do it online. To do that um, requires, you know, we're, we're, we're running a proper business. Um, we have to do that very efficiently. Otherwise, if we didn't, um, actually our members who own us um, would have the right to say, you know what, you're, you're not running that business as, as well as you, as you could do. So we... I guess um, being non non profit maximizing, you know, schools are similar, charities are, and a good, well run charity um, is 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 running things uh, properly and uh, and effectively. But to give you some sort of examples of how how we do those, um, everything we do has to benefit our membership and has to benefit as many members as as possible. We have a broad um, membership and um, this year we took the decision uh, to hold our prices on most of our wines despite inflationary costs from our growers and despite higher alcohol duty uh, that came in in August um, and we've done that um, um, because we think that members deserve to be paying a fair price all year round um, and that has cost us, um, in terms of as an investment in price or in margin, about three and a half million pounds. Um, wow. So our members are getting value back kind of immediately. And we wouldn't be able to do that if we didn't run the business professionally um, and um, and effectively. So uh, everyone benefits um, and, um, you know, it, it requires a lot of focus um, and uh, have to say it's it's refreshing that as a business you know if you come here at our head office all the staff everyone is just totally focused on on the member and then the, the the member experience what you say on price it was interesting with black friday about a month ago you know that you get that flood of emails from <laughs> various people offering you black friday discounts there's a lot of you know a lot of these discounts are you know are quite questionable there's a lot out there in the press about sort of faux discounts and all the rest of it and one of the emails or a couple of the emails i got in my inbox were from the wine society announcing that there were no discounts because every friday was a, a typical friday for the wine society i mean i remember i smiled at the email because it was another email in my inbox but actually you were making a good point there that this is um this is a normal day for you you don't really do discounting do you we don't know i mean we we do we do a small amount of discounting but um i mean tiny tiny amount when it you know if one of our growers the new vintage you know they need to make space in their winery for the new vintage and they've got some stock that they want to move they might offer us uh, might offer it to us at a beneficial price and we we would take it and then pass that discount directly on to our members but it is it is the exception i mean we the the prices of our wines you know we they are fairly consistent all year round so we don't do a sort of high low thing that that you often see in retail um certainly here in the uk um where uh, you know products are 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 increased in price in order to bring them down mm. um when you look at you know we we analyze 
called our basket and we compare our basket of wines that we sell that can be sold that are also available um, with competitors of ours and you look at the graph our graph our line stays absolutely flat all year round um, whereas competitors it's you know up down up down up down so yeah, that's what we 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 really believe in the sort of everyday low price um, rather than than discounting per se. Um, we feel it's more transparent and upfront um, and sensible in the long term. Yeah, and you see that uh, with the press tastings that I go along to someone hugely respected like uh, Jancis or one of her team will be there, and you get a lot of of, of good value GV or a lot of VVGB, so very, very good value in, in, in her reviews. Um, it's, uh, it is, you know, um, qu- quite noticeable. Does it make your job different to a buyer's job in a commercial rival that has shareholders? I think that, um, you know, our, our focus is, it, it's really simple, actually, to, to, as a buyer at the wine society, there are just two things that that are of prime importance, really, which is how good the taste of a wine is. So it's all about the taste and the quality. And the second element is value for money. Um, and uh, those are the two key criteria when we are um, selecting uh, wines for our range. And the value for money, by the way, is not, uh, that doesn't mean cheap wine. I mean, value for money right across all price points. So, you know, we sell wines from seven pounds a bottle right up to hundreds uh, of pounds a bottle, uh, which is a reflection of our membership who who use us to, to buy their everyday drinking wines, but, but also to buy their sort of top end fine wines that they like to sell or an age. So that's our prime kind of focus as, as buyers. Of course, going back to what you asked, you know, about the sort of commercial question, we have a commercial framework to work within, um, and that framework is a framework. They're guidelines, so it gives actually the buyers here a lot of independence and freedom uh, to pick and choose really those wines that they they truly believe in. Um, but they need to achieve a certain margin uh, because we have to generate a margin in order to uh, have the cash to run the business that we have with all of the services that come with uh, with with um, with the, with the membership but the great thing i think about the wine society is that a couple of things actually one is we we've got an incredibly experienced team of buyers um, and it, it's a big team we're eight buyers in total and we divide the whole world between us and each buyer really specializes in in each of the regions they represent um, and that buyer um, is totally free to pick whatever wine they want to pick for their range. We don't do things by committee. And so, um, you know, our Burgundy buyer knows Burgundy well, and he can decide exactly what goes into the Burgundy uh, range. The other thing is that we we spend a lot of time visiting vineyards, visiting our growers, because we think that's the best way to discover new things and quite esoteric things sometimes. So, you know, winemakers around the world are so inventive, so creative and artistic that um, they're constantly 
um, trying and playing around with new blends and new wines. Um, and actually, you get um, the best way to get exposure to those is by going out and visiting uh, visiting them. And we're lucky because our members also love to explore and are quite adventurous in terms of their approach to, to, to the wines they buy. So uh, we've been able to take quite a lot of risks with our range and get behind certain areas at a time when they might not seem to be that fashionable in the market, but then become fashionable. So good recent example of that is Greece. We got behind uh, Greek wines about five years ago. We think they're fantastic. Mm. Um, and uh, it's an unbelievable time to be buying Greek wines. And this year, you know, they've resonated really well with our members. And this year, we hit a milestone. We're now selling more Greek wine than Argentinian wine, um, which is which is absolutely incredible. You know, we sell a lot of Argentinian wine, uh, but Greek has, Greece has now overtaken that. Um, and our members are, are adoring the wines from Greece. And anyone that's listening that hasn't tried Greek wines, I highly recommend you do. Put aside your, your memories of Retsina on holiday, um, because there are some super wines coming out of Greece at the moment. Yeah, there really are. And I can't wait to talk about a few more trends with you um, a little bit later on. I think I'm right in saying that you're quite fortunate um, that your typical member um, spends a bit more than a typical punter on the high street on wine, don't they? They do, yeah. I um, I think the, you know, the, the, the average spend in the UK is about £6 a bottle. Um, and our members' average spend is about twelve pounds a bottle, so so nearly double. Well, double, and um, you know, there's there's a good reason for that because um, I, I mean, David, you you know this well, but if you if you think about a wine at six pounds, once you have taken the cost of shipping, the cost of the glass bottle, the cost of the label, the cost of the closure. Um, our uh, alcohol duty and then our VAT uh, and the margin that a retailer would 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 then also have um, after six pounds um, you know you're left with maybe 50p of that goes towards the the actual wine what's in the bottle so mm. the more you spend above six pounds proportionally you get much better return in terms of quality um, and that sweet spot is definitely in the kind of 10 to 15 pounds a bottle um, where as a wine consumer, um, yeah, you're getting a lot of bang for your buck if you spend in, in that sort of 10 to 15 pounds. Yes, chiefly because although you could rightly be uh, outraged about the level of duty, which went up, as you say, back in August yeah. on a bottle of wine, it at least it is a fixed amount. The VAT obviously isn't because that's on the total price, but the yep. duty level is fixed, whereas it isn't in some countries. It's it's a percentage. So in mm. that respect, although we are taxed a lot, it, it is at least if you're paying a bit more for wine, um, that is um, at least an advantage, isn't it? Uh, yes, it, yes, to an extent, although I find it hard to, to, to put the word advantage in the same sentence as the the UK's due to it's all relative it's all relative yeah we had the biggest increase um I think ever uh this year at a time when um 
when we know that everyone is facing, you know, real challenges in terms of spend. So um, uh, fortunately, the government, they they had considered putting in another duty increase early in 2024. Uh, They've decided not to do that, which is um, which we are very pleased about. Um, Mm. So, yes. Yeah, there's more trouble down the line, but we won't go to that now because there I have, is, yes. <laughs> have Richard Siddle coming on um, in uh, the next episode who's going to talk all about what might uh, be uh, lined up for 2025. Excellent. Let's talk about happier stuff then. Um, yeah. uh, so, and your own journey into wine. Um, so how did you get into being a wine buyer? Was there an epiphany moment? <laughs> Uh, I think they're, they're kind. Yes, there was. Um, but it was it also. So it happened at a time I never I never knew what I wanted to do as a job. And I was when I was at university, I still didn't know what I wanted to go into as a career. And I was fortunate, um, actually, at the time that my dad was getting into really, really quite sort of serious wines. And um, every time I'd go home from uni, uh, he'd open something and it just fascinated me that we were drinking this stuff called wine with I was with him but the experience I was getting was really different to the wines I was drinking with my friends at university and that kind of I just got really curious kind of how can wine it's just called wine but how come what is it that that creates this sort of variety of 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 styles and also the experience of drinking them so yeah, I kind of got the bug, I guess, um, in my last year at uni um, in terms of wine being more than just um, a vehicle for alcohol. You know, I was actually genuinely curious about the whole whole thing and went on a sort of tasting course. And then I finished my degree and I thought, well, I had to get a job and I thought, OK, I'll get a job in wine. And I started working in a in a wine shop Um and yeah, the rest is is, is history, really. Um, I've always wanted to work with the product. So um, as I got more experience in the wine trade, um, I was always keen to sort of keep my career very much in front of the product. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm now absolutely honoured and privileged that I I do buying at the wine society because i don't think there's any better place to be a wine buyer for Mm. um and so yeah very very lucky yeah and when we say buyer the job description sounds fairly straightforward but actually it's a very interesting and varied job because you are to um a great extent getting involved in some winemaking decisions from time to time, aren't you? Yeah, yes. I mean, we're not winemakers, but what we can do and what what our growers um, look to us is, you know, we we essentially, as a buyer, um, my I am representing the, our membership. And so um, I think it's my duty and responsibility with with when I visit growers to to say to them, you know what, this is what's working and this is what's not working. This is the sorts of styles that our members are really liking. And um, the really good winemakers will then interpret that and go, oh, OK, maybe if we, we could tweak this wine um, to have a little bit less oak or a little bit more oak or a bit more of this great variety or, you know, include this element to give it more freshness. 
And um, and that's a really fun part of the job because I guess, you know, you are, as the buyer, just you're representing the market and saying our market is really into this. Um, how can we, how can you express that in the style of wines that you're making whilst keeping, you know, to your philosophy of the region that you work in, um, and the philosophy and the vision of the of, of of that particular producer. So, yeah, it's great fun. We have we do a lot of that with our own label wines, which are the society uh, called the Society's Range and the Exhibition Range. Um, and uh, yeah, we do, we we get very involved in blending those wines um, for our members. And yeah, it's 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 great fun um, yeah. uh, to be able to to do that. Yeah, and those wines um, are, you know, in- incredible value uh, uh, as well. It's uh, it's worth saying as a as a consumer. You've been doing this for twenty years. I think you joined the society a little bit before that in a different role, but you've been a buyer for a couple of decades. Um, and things change in wine all the time, don't they? They do. That's why it's such a fun business to be in. Every year is a different vintage, and Mother Nature. Um, you know, Mother Nature's not the same every year. So, yeah, there's that you learn constantly. What trends have you seen uh, in that time? Because I'm thinking 20 years, you know, 20 years ago, something that um, is probably every day in our lives, um, and something like a New Zealand Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, uh, that was still relatively new as a thing um, at the turn of the millennium, wasn't it? Yes, it uh, absolutely was, David. Um you know, I think I think the greatest or the biggest trend in the last 20 years is that quality across the world has never been better. So 20 years ago, you know, it was still patchy in parts of the world, um, uh, both in the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. The southern hemisphere was very much, I mean, broadly in a generalisation, beginning its sort of uh, journey on in, in terms of wine quality but you know you think about now compared to 20 years ago um, wherever you go in the UK if you go on our website or you go into a wine shop uh, look at the range of wines that are coming from all over the world um, and the, the the standard is just so high you rarely get you know a duff bottle um, so I think that is really really exciting you know for 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 wine drinkers and you know New Zealand is a classic example Australia as well uh, but New Zealand Sauvignon you know people weren't really that familiar with it 20 years ago and now it's become you know a major major category Um, and more recently places as I mentioned like Greece I think a lot of the southern European um, areas as well are producing better and better wines, in particular better whites, um, making much fresher, fruitier whites from places like Italy and, and Spain and, and Portugal. Um, so, yeah, lots happening. And, and you know, uh, terroir, you know, the, the, the sort of expression or how a wine expresses its place, its winemaker's sort of vision, um, and and climate, I think, is also getting more and more um, precise um, in 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 terms of how the wines reflect terroir. 
because um, people, uh, growers are managing their vineyards um, so much better, you know, with new techniques and, and generally producing healthy grapes every vintage, even when um, the weather has been has been a challenge. And then I think more recently, um, and it's a, a, a big trend and a, re- a trend that we are totally behind and we are putting a lot of effort into is, is sustainability, you know, both from an environmental perspective, but also a social perspective. And, um, you know, we are pretty convinced that if we don't act, we being humans across the world, if we don't act, you know, now, um, there's a real risk in 20 to 50 years that wine production could be could be quite challenged and, and under threat in, in parts of the world. So um, we think it's really, really important. And we're taking a lot of steps to reduce our carbon footprint, uh, both directly, but also with our uh, producers as well. Sustainability is an incredibly complex area, of course, because... Uh, someone I chatted to likened it to whack-a-mole. Uh, you know, you, you think you've mm. solved one problem, and in fact, all you've done is cause another problem somewhere <laughs> yeah. else. And it, it is really, uh, the more you investigate sustainability, and this is not a reason for not doing it, of course, but the more you uh, try to do it, the more uh, you open up sort of new areas of uh, challenge uh, as well. Have you found that? Absolutely. I mean, I've um, we, we we appointed a sustainability uh, director uh, about eighteen months ago, um, and um, he, that's his background and his expertise. And I have to say, I've I've the one big learning I've had um, uh, from him, Dom Deville is his name. Um, uh, he talks about uh, trade offs. He says there will never, there's never the perfect solution. So. It's a question of going, OK, if we do that, yes, that might have a detrimental impact over here, but the positive impact over there is greater. Um, so so it's really important that you have have a very kind of holistic plan. So just doing one thing, of course, will help. Uh, but actually, each of those individual things need to kind of interact with each other and also be we have to be prepared that this takes time it's not going to happen quickly um so very much sort of step by step so you know there are always trade-offs um and the things that we are now doing that we're we're really proud of is you know we just that we the first thing we did, actually, David, was we had our carbon footprint measured mm. um, so that we could see where the biggest areas of impact were and therefore we could prioritise those first. So the number one thing that is our, it, that contributes to our carbon footprint at the Wine Society is glass. Uh, it's 31% of our footprint uh, which is by far the highest single contributor. Um, so um, um, lightening the glass uh, bottles that we buy our wines and import our wines on um, can have a huge impact. Um, 
And we are doing exactly that. So we now have lightened 40% of our range um, to lightweight bottles. And over the next few years, have a plan to get to 100%, actually. Um, So by 2027 vintage, uh, all of our still wines will be below 420 grams, which is a lightweight bottle. uh, And that will save significant amount of carbon. Um, That weight of glass, uh, the big impact there is shipping around the world um, because the heavier the shipment, the more carbon that you're using. And do you think we will get to a stage where we don't have wine in a glass bottle? Oh, big question. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think that it's very plausible for wines to drink on an everyday basis um, that are designed to be drunk, you know, within a year or two of being produced. Um, I think that that is a real possibility. Uh, we trialled bag in box um, with um, a selection of our own label wines earlier this year. And um, bag in box uh, has a fantastic benefit um, on the environment compared to glass. Um, and we were amazed at the response from our members. Uh, we've had to the, the trial, which we'd expected to last six months, um, the first batch that we thought would last six months um, lasted like about three or four weeks. So was was the interest so much? There was so much interest in the bag and box. So mm. um, I, I can see I can see a world where we have much more bag in box. Um, they they look great now as well. Um, the two point two five liter bag in boxes fit into your fridge perfectly and it's a very very convenient thing so I think yes I think the jury is still out for in terms of glass as a format for fine wines that are designed to age in bottle certainly we haven't seen um, another format that's not glass that can be beneficial for the very sort of slow, gradual, graceful ageing that can occur in glass. Um, so, but I suspect, you know, this is an area that um, is probably the most innovative area in wine at the moment is is, is, is diff- a lot of experimenting with different sort of formats, different packaging formats, you know, RPET, plastic, cans, there's, there's all sorts going on. And, um, um so so i think it is possible yeah um maybe not for fine wines for a while but um i think it's very possible for everyday drinking wines yeah interesting really interesting yeah and you put really good quality wine into to bag and box which yes. made a big difference i think you know i was very impressed with what you did uh, last year and no doubt in your anniversary year uh, i imagine we've got more of that to come based on the success of the experiment i'm i'm thinking yes yes we have we'll be rolling out bag in box permanently next year um and that will mean that we'll have more wines in bag in box um so yeah watch out for those well, New Year's Eve, that means that tomorrow, New Year's Day, we are 150 and we have a huge um, programme of celebrations that we've got planned throughout the year with our members. 
um, and that includes events, but also includes um, lots of uh, really interesting uh, wines that we have developed specially for um, for our 150th celebration. And those wines um, look back at um, the sort of history of the Wine Society. So we're kind of we will be um, we've we've bought wines to put under a special uh, 150th generation label that reflects um, our first 150 years and the kind of wines that members would be were buying in the first 50 years, the second 50 years and the third 50 years. And then at the end of the um, at the end of 2024, we um, will be launching a range of wines that um, is our best guess at what wines members might be drinking over the next 50 years. Um, so there's lots of exciting um, new things uh, coming out next year for the for, for, for wine society members. Yeah, I'll say um, you've been working on this for ages, haven't you? Because <laughs> one of these, um, I noticed one of these special edition wines to mark the 150th, I think was um, commissioned, if, if that's the right word to use, 10 years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, David, we started thinking about this in, yeah, about 20... 20- 12 I think was where we started to sort of come up with concepts and ideas and in 2014 uh, we started um, buying some of the wines uh, for for part of the range we're doing some really special fine wines um, in in the range and um, the concept behind those fine wines are they are wines that we have bought and then stored and matured ourselves um, go, some of the wines go back to the 2004 vintage. Um, so we've held them um, since um, some uh, bought in 2014, held them here for 10 years, and we're releasing them in 2024 when they're perfectly ready, fully mature. They've developed that extra level of complexity that top fine wines do. So, yes, um, and, and actually I'm fresh from us uh we just did a tasting of those wines because as a team, um, many of the wines we haven't tried for 10 years. Um, so it was it was one of the it was a special moment, actually, where we we pulled the corks and uh, you kind of like have our um, have our punts on these wines from an aging perspective. Um, how, how have they performed? And I have to say we were. We were smiling by the end of the day. Um, there are some really, really lovely wines. I can't mm. wait to um, can't wait to present them. So, what tease me? What what sort of wines are we talking about here? So, with the fine wines, we have got these. Uh, so, we've selected about twenty odd wines that are uh, being chosen because they are wines we believe have a really good um, uh, aging potential. Um, and a common, and therefore a lot of them come from the classic areas. Um, so we've got, um, you know, we've got a Margot from Bordeaux, a Pouillac from Bordeaux, um, Santa Million from Bordeaux. We've got Burgundy, uh, Merceau, uh, Rioja, Grand Reserve, a Rioja Reserva, Chianti, uh, Barolo, um, um, and so on. But we've also got, um, some cracking, um, 
styles that may be a little bit less familiar to non-members of the wine society, but but styles that we think are uh, are really worth aging. So we've got a, a Gruner Veltliner from Austria, um, which is I think the 2019 vintage. So that's got five years of age and it's just a delicious wine. It's a dry wine. Mm. Um, we've got Chardonnay from an amazing vineyard in New Zealand and and one from California, as well as an amazing single vineyard, Zinfandel field blend from California as well. So quite a wide variety of styles that um, that have aged. Yeah, they've, they've aged magnificently well. And of course, we have picked very serious um, wine producers. Uh, we've been fortunate that, that our wine producers have been queuing up to work on this project um so we could be really picky about about who we've um who we've selected so we've kind of they, they are the a-listers um of 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 fine wine yeah i bet they were queuing up as well back to what we were talking about at the start you have a cash flow advantage here don't you at the society where you can do things like this because you're not worried about cash flow in the same way that a, a commercial rival might be Bang on, David. Yeah, exactly. So um, we can um, we uh, the 150th wines is a is a a perfect example of that. So, um, you know, you would normally run a business like ours, um, turning stock as quickly as possible because you want to turn that stock into cash. We um, actually have quite a high level of what we call keeping stock. And these are wines that we buy for the long term, like the 150th. Um, and, um, you know, we um, we can at the moment we've got about 24 million pounds worth of wines that are keeping stock wines. You know, and that's 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 a big amount of cash for a business that turns over about 150 million will be turning over this year. So I always whenever we get a new um, head of finance, it's always a very interesting first meeting that, that I, I will have with, with them uh, because the first thing they pick up on is you've got that much stock for long-term keeping. What's the benefit of that to the business? Well, the benefit is that our members get to buy wines from us that are fully mature, that have perfect provenance because we've bought them when they were released directly from the producer and then stored them here um, in perfect sort of cellared conditions. And so, yeah, members see that as a, as a great benefit. And it is one of the real key benefits being a cooperative that doesn't have to turn stock into cash and or profit to... Um, uh, towards dividends for external shareholders. Yeah, it's a real privilege, actually, for, yes. for you and, and for the, the members too. Um, is there a wine that you've bought during your uh, career with the Society that has a special place in your heart? I'm sure there are hundreds, actually, but is um, there a particular wine that makes you feel um, especially proud that you have a particular connection with? There's yes, I, I there is one that's jumped into my head. I mean, there were of course lots of lots of examples that I could I could pick out. I mean, I, I I think one of the most satisfying things being a buyer is when you discover something that might be a little bit untested, and and you know you taste it, and the price is right, and you think you know this is going to work, 
I've got, you know, my instinct is this this wine's going to work for our members and they're going to like it. And and then, you know, when it's offered and you see the response and, and not all, not always, we don't always get it right. But when we when it does go well, it's very satisfying. But I guess to answer your question, David, the wine that stands out for me is, um, you know, I buy I buy Spain and Rioja obviously is a big part of of, of our Spanish portfolio. Um, and about 10 years ago, I was a very, very good relationship with a vineyard in Rioja called Contino, which is a top vineyard. And, um, you know, they only make a handful of wines under their label. Um, and um, they offered me backdoor access to create a special Contino wine for Wine Society members. Um, and that was a very special moment. And we we now do that every year. Um, and so to get that backdoor access and to have that trust from the winemaker that between him and I, we can create this special wine for members is, yeah, that feels really special, actually. Um, and um, yeah, that, that, that would be my standout, I think, David. Yeah. And Spain, it's worth saying, you were talking about how wine has changed, how wine has improved in quality. Spain is a case in point, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the the, uh, the, the white wines in particular, you know, the quality of the white wines has just got remarkably better in the last sort of 10, 15 years. You know, we... 15 years ago we wouldn't be we were hardly selling many spanish whites um it's now a big part of the range and um but more than whites i mean spain you know what it's doing with grapes like garnacha from different parts of spain at different vineyard sites different altitudes um really interesting uh wines um, and then, of course, you've got the classics, sherry. I mean, sherry surely is the most underrated and underpriced great wine of the wine world. Spain makes amazing sparkling wine. You know, I think I'm constantly campaigning for Carver. I think Carver is 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 misunderstood uh, here in the UK. Um, but, you know, if you really want a good value alternative, to something like champagne carver is it it's made like champagne it's from local grapes different grapes to champagne but made in exactly the same way so if you're looking for a dry um, style of sparkling wine something different to prosecco i think carver offers uh, amazing value so yeah the spanish have got it covered on all counts actually yeah and you've mentioned two of the most underrated wines in the wine world that represent the best value i think dry sherry for me and carver as you say uh just incredible yeah. uh value so um if you were stuck on a desert island um everyone gets asked this question and you could only have one wine um oh. which will be a challenge i know but uh, <laughs> if you had to choose a desert island wine um what's it going to be oh my word so you know what I I would in my so short list would be champagne would be Rioja mm-hmm. probably a German a light German Moselle they would all be in my short list but I think fundamentally if it was only one wine that I could carry on drinking for the rest of my life I would have to go to Burgundy and I would have 
to pick something like a Gevray Chambertin. And I'm assuming if it's a desert island wine, uh, there's, there's, yeah, we don't need to worry about cost, do we? There's no, no, no kind of economics. No. Nope. Yeah, I'd probably pick something from one of the top domains in Gevray Chambertin, like Domaine Rousseau, uh, which I can't afford to buy, but I've had the privilege of, of trying several times through my career. And uh, that wine just takes you to another world. Um, and I think you'd probably, whilst the desert island would be lovely and I'd hope sunny and nice in nice and relaxing, you'd probably need to be taken to another world regularly if the desert island was your only world. So yeah, that would be my desert island wine, David. Yeah, great choice. And it's Club Tropicana. The drinks are free. So <laughs> therefore, you might as well go to Burgundy because that's the only way most of us can afford Burgundy at <laughs> top level these days. You're absolutely yeah. right. Um, it's a really exciting year ahead for the Wine Society. Uh, I can't wait uh, to taste some of those uh, wines uh, from the uh, special range that you've uh, talked about and also to see what you think we might be drinking in the years to come so maybe uh, we can catch up again uh, later in the year and see what those wines are but it's a great pleasure to chat to you congratulations to the society and to all its uh, lovely team on the anniversary and uh, yeah what a year ahead thanks Pierre thank you David thanks for having me The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique the world through the lens of wine and spirits. And we round off, as ever, with some medals from the IWSC in 2023. And we're going to focus on Spain because, uh, obviously, Pierre buys for Spain. And he was talking about that uh, transformation in, in quality. He's a massive uh, Spanish wine fan. So we'll pick out... Uh, all of these gold medals, five golds from the uh, Spain judging at the IWSC in 2023 to Rioja first, uh, which got a mention earlier. Baronia, Grand Reserva, 2015. Gold, 95 points. The judges led by Dercy Viana Jr., MW, featuring another MW, Regine Lee, and also uh, Laura Petri, Brad Horn, and Rachel Pogmore. Their tasting note rich stewed morello cherry aromatics with a hint of allspice full and forward body with excellent integration of alcohol tannin and acidity baked bramble fruits maraschino cherries clove and licorice on the palate this fantastic wine is rich and voluptuous heredad de urenia santo sira 2016 from pago de urenia uh, which is in castilla y leon a gold medal winner uh, the same judging panel uh, giving this 96 points and they describe a serious, enjoyable, well-made wine, very rich with dark plum, violet and black pepper spice. Rich yet finely knitted tannins and fresh acidity for balance. Well-integrated oak and the palate develops notes of leather and tobacco with a long finish. Let's feature some gold medal winning sherries next because Pierre is a fan. I am a fan. And you should be a fan as well of uh, these uh, outstanding category sherries. Bodegas Fundador, uh, that's Harvey's. Palo Cortado, medium blend, 30-year-old. This got 96 points, a strong gold medal. The panel, again led by Dercy Viana Jr. MW with Matthew Forster MW 
Igor Sotrich, uh, Andrew Johnson and Kat Lomax, uh, retail consultant, they describe complex and inviting nose that explodes with the scent of ripe plums, orange peel, burnt toffee, toasted almonds and rancio notes. The palate is dense, rich and concentrated with alcohol and acidity in perfect balance. Endless layers of flavour. Here's another from Emilio Lustau. VORS Oloroso, non-vintage. This got gold with 95 points. Different panel of judges here. Uh, Junior still leading, uh, but on the panel, Rich Lewis, Igor Sotrich, Christopher Delalande, MS, uh, Master Sommelier, and Philip Tuck, MW, so a master of wine like Junior. And they said this, depth and complexity on the nose with aromas of citrus, cinnamon, spice, roasted nuts and grilled meat, combining with well-rounded integrated acidity on the palate. A multi-layered complexity with full body and pleasant drying astringency, long and complex. And a final gold for Valdespino, El Candado, Pedro Jimenez, non-vintage. 95 points for this. The tasting note, robust yet elegant. This is a highly complex sherry with mustard and fennel notes over dark prunes, raisins, coffee and dates. It treads the line between rich concentration and delicate finesse with a long, persistent finish. Well, talking of finishes, that's it for this edition of the drinking hour and also uh, for this year as well so uh, happy new year and happy anniversary to the wine society as it turns 150 years old Uh, my thanks to pierre mansour and thanks to you for listening see you next time the drinking hour with david kermode in partnership with club onologique the world through the lens of wine and spirits To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.